0: Welcome to Bleacher Blum, a sports
1: podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer.
0: All right, everybody in. Gates are open. We need more the better. Get those good vibes going. It is a Friday here on Bleacher Blum's David Tuttle and I. Hanging out, opening the gates, inviting everybody in. And that's really the mode we're in right now. It takes a village to get things right. And we are going to try and encourage you through this podcast. We've got some statistical data. I've actually been emailing back and forth with the producer of our uh, game day broadcast because both of us obviously invested in the team and what they're doing, but also fans of the game. And we also want to try and figure out, you know, what, what, Is the issue, how do you fix it? Is there an issue or is it just bad luck? And I think some of the numbers that I have have come up with and shared with our producer, Carl Patterson, may give you an idea that the Astros maybe have run into a little bit of bad luck or they've just been outright bad. Because right now, the initial feeling is a little bit of panic here in Houston as the Astros head to Washington, D.C. to take on the Washington Nationals down by two. And we've got plenty of Astro stuff to dig into, plenty of World Series numbers to dig into, but that is not what we're going to do right now. It is an interesting, interesting time to be a weatherman here in Houston because a couple days ago we had a little bit of a mild summer and then we had some rain. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, gale force winds, 40, 50 degrees outside, pets' heads are falling off. And how about Amarillo, Texas? It is snowing. On October 25th, I don't know if you knew that, Tuttle, but I saw something on Twitter where it said, pray for Amarillo, and then if you read a little bit further down, it said, because it's actually snowing in October in Amarillo, Texas, so kind of a crazy weather system going through. I know that eventually, I think this system's going to get up to the northeast and maybe affect game, game uh, four or five, I think, and maybe, maybe hopefully not suspending it, but maybe uh, just a little bit of a delay. And uh, I am not traveling to Washington, D.C. Tuttle is not traveling to D.C. Tuttle is right there in his home in Southern California. I'm going to bring him in right now and see how the great King Tut is doing on this fine Friday. Plummer, doing well. Uh, we're
1: amateur meteorologists, and Southern California is suffering some of the same, as you can recall, from living out here during uh, your time. But uh, Halloween is always when it gets hot again. And yesterday, it was 98 or 99. Today, it's supposed to be 95. And then on Sunday, it's supposed to be 75. So we'll see how that goes. But gosh, going out early in the morning, it's about 75 degrees. And you'll go through pockets where you get hit by a breeze that's like 90. And then you're like, whew, and then you're back to like 60. So really, really strange weather system. But I, I, I take comfort in the fact that it's always hot during the Halloween time. And, uh, and so regardless of how crazy this weather feels, I realize that every year around this time we get the Santa Ana's and it's, uh, it's pretty par for the course. I will also say that one of my daughters, my daughters are 10, as you know, but, uh, she's taking these losses pretty hard. So we do need to bring the positivity today. I I'm trying to keep, I keep trying to teach her in her own sports to, you know, give your best effort, do what you can. And the results kind of will be the results, but having her watch the Astros game you know, biting her nails and watching it turn out on the uh, the wrong side of things is a uh, is a uh, it's a life lesson. So uh, hopefully, as I tweeted out yesterday, uh, everybody stays positive and and realizes that it ain't over till it's over.
0: Yeah, they're two games back, and yes, it does seem like a larger mountain to to climb for the Houston Astros. And you know, it's funny you talk about you know your daughters. I had my mom out here over the weekend. Uh, we flew her out for her birthday that was back in September, and she had a chance to come out, watch my daughter's play some volleyball. And it was a lot of fun, but at the same time, she's, she's hyper-invested in the game too. And I should have asked her about this. I actually should have put her on the podcast because I'm always curious about that because you know, maybe in future podcasts we could talk a little bit about parenting and sports and things like that. But my mom is sitting on the couch, and we went to game one. I took everybody to game one. And we had a blast. It didn't turn out the Astros way because they lost 5-4. But it was a highly entertaining game. There were, there were flashes of hope, so it wasn't uh, that bad. But we're sitting on the couch for game two. Just had a lot going on, and uh, I had a lot of pregame work to do and was just too tired to get everybody together to get downtown. And first pitch of the game, I think, is a ball. And I hear, oh, my God. And I go, wait, what happened? What happened? Did somebody hit a home run? You know, I mean, I'm in a full panic. And she goes, no, he threw a ball, <laughs> and I was like, whoa. I go, hey, I love you to death. I understand you're you're locked in, but I go, I can't, I can't hang on every pitch in that sense. You know, if you could internalize that, that'd be great because you know how it is. Once it starts to Get vocalized, then it starts to snowball. It affects my wife. It affects my kids. It affects me. And next thing you know, we're all sitting on the couch, going <gasps> on every pitch. And I, I didn't have, I didn't ask her, but I should have asked her. You know, was this how you watched me play baseball games? Because my wife is the exact opposite. She, she would show up. She'd watch games. She'd be waving at me from the stands, and it was kind of a, a, a fun experience for her. It wasn't as stressful. But I'll have to ask my mom about. You know, what was it like watching me in the stands play the game? Because People are locked in, and I mean, you, you follow on Twitter as much as I do some of the stuff. I mean, it is literally pitch to pitch in the playoffs.
1: It is, and I, and, and I hope people can understand the difference between that and you know, some of the things that we bring from, uh, from the podcast perspective, but also from our experience, because I, I had a hard time with that, and I do remember my dad being a little vocal, especially in college. I would throw a pitch, and he could tell that I was upset about the pitch. But as you know, there's a lot of gamesmanship with the umpires and whatnot. And so I didn't want to always express my frustration with the umpire. I might realize, oh, he missed that pitch. If he misses two or three, then you know, then you have a conversation with them, but you don't need your your family or your friends yelling in the in the uh, in the stands like, hey, get your stuff together. You missed that pitch. You know, I had to go have a conversation with my dad early on in my college career to say, hey, you know, you leave that stuff to me, but uh, but it would be interesting to ask your mom and and ask my mom as well, kind of what their what their intensity level is when they're watching their kids or their grandkids play, and and what what you know what it was like kind of watching us play because we continue to play further and further and further and further than uh, most of our friends and and the people that we started playing with. I, I do have a quick anecdote to share before we jump in the mailbag, and I remember when uh, when I played little league, it was nine through twelve. So now it's like all the 10-year-olds play together, all the 11-year-olds. Are... But, man, I mean, my first at bat when I was 9 years old was against this kid that drove a mini bike and smoked Marlboro Reds. I mean, he was just like Kelly Leak. Scared the daylights out of me, man. And uh, and I was 9 and up there cowering in the box. But uh, this is a little story that my mom told me. Well, when I was finally 12 years old, I I was I still played, you know, when I was 9, when I was 10, when I was 11. Um, But you get drafted as a 9-year-old and you stay on the same team in Little League. I'm sure I'm boring the podcast folks about my structure of our little league, but it it was a lot different back then. I'm an old man. So we got drafted when we were nine. And when we were 10, 11, 12, we played on that same team. And uh, there was a little parody in the league and all that. But when I was 12, my first game as a 12-year-old, I finally made it to that spot. I kind of liked baseball, but I don't even know if I was good at it. And One of my mom's friends, I was playing my neighbor's team. One of my mom's friends said, oh, this is David's like third year of baseball. Is he, you know, how's he like it? Is he going to stick with it? And uh, the second pitch I saw when I was 12 years old, I hit off the scoreboard. <laughs> I was like, crap. And I'd never hit a home <laughs> nice. run in Little League. I would never hit a home run in Little League. And it was like, I, you know, I didn't even know that what it felt like to hit a home run. It was like, whoa. And, you know, it was probably 210 feet to the scoreboard or something, you know, small. Hit it off the scoreboard. And uh and my mom tells the story, obviously, because I wasn't there. She said, Yeah, I think he might stick with it a little bit. But uh, but you know, I, I, I don't ever remember her getting, like you said, pitch to pitch or all fired up. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to to ask them and maybe we will get them on the podcast as the uh as the off season uh is upon us.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be a lot of fun to hear those stories and maybe they come up, you know, maybe that'll trigger some memories for for them of watching us and uh that'd be a lot of fun to hear. And today was a, a good day for me. I got off to an early start taking the girls to school and, you know, looking for good vibes going into this game three with the Astros down 0-2 and fans have a tendency you know, wear your favorite t-shirt, pair of socks, whatever it may be. But I really had an opportunity, and I've been threatening to do this on a lot of our broadcasts, is to go out and get a pair of boots. And I finally found a company here in Houston called Tejas Boots, T-E-J-A-S, Custom Boots, and I'm all in. I went down, met Chris, the owner today. And if you watch it on my Instagram, uh, follow me at blummer 27. You'll get the, the, I figured out how to do an Instagram channel. I'm starting my own mini series on how I get custom boots. So it's been a lot of fun, but it it was a beautiful shop. You know, it kind of had that, uh, you know, grease monkey type feel to it where it was kind of rustic, had some, you know, it had a bar in it with every bourbon I think ever made, but then he had the, you know, he had just these sheets of skins hanging uh, for leather that he uses on his boots. So my good vibe and my intention to get the Astros turned around is going to be going out. I just got fitted for custom boots. I picked out hippopotamus leather. I didn't even know that 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 was a thing. Uh, They're going to look great. But, you know, just in talking in, about the fan and how we watch these games, how about is there anything that you did, Tuttle, or you do to kind of change the momentum when it's a little negative or it's not going your way? Is there anything you ever did to kind of, you know, change your attitude and get you a little more upbeat and look forward to going out there and competing again and hopefully getting a big W?
1: You know, I can't remember anything specifically. We, we talk about jinxes for the week here. I mean, it, it wasn't always a jinx, but obviously you needed uh, positive vibes and a positive attitude. So I, I definitely look for silly things like that to change up the momentum. But I was never like, yeah. got to wear the same underwear, got to wear the same hat. It was more like you said, I, I think the saying goes, you know, do the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So if you want uh, a different result, then you got to change up some of the things you're doing beforehand. So if typically you eat you know breakfast, but you don't eat lunch uh then you know eat lunch and don't eat breakfast or something like that something silly to that extent just to just to kind of put your mind in a different uh in a different frame and i and i think we've talked about it before so much at this level especially from an actual on-field perspective is mental so i don't think i actually think everybody around the clubhouse is probably more nervous than the guys in the clubhouse but uh, but that's something that you could probably speak to as well.
0: No, I think you, get, you make a great point. And if you have been reading some of the articles and talking about the Astros, you do realize that they do have a, a ton of confidence. They're a very good team, especially on paper. Now it's just a matter of going out and doing it. But I like the idea of the mentality. You kind of create this vibe, create this motion, and get things going a little bit. Because I'm with you, Jinx, as we talk about it all the time or for the week. I wasn't a guy when I played where I said, oh, my gosh, i got to change my underwear. i got to change my batting gloves. It wasn't anything in in that sense. It was just more, you know, have a little fun with it, kind of shift the brain a little bit and take your mind off dwelling on the negative and move forward. So I hope everybody at home is listening to this podcast. Get pumped for game three. It's happening. And we're pumped that everybody is listening to this podcast because it's been a blast. Doing a couple of weeks has actually worked out great for Tuttle and I. People are going to BleacherBlums.com, they're buying the t-shirts, they're getting into the, into the swing of things and becoming real fans in the bleachers with Tuttle and I. And to that point, we have gotten a ton of questions on, uh, on our mailbag to the point where we actually have to start whittling them down and picking and choosing which ones we can put in the podcast because there's so many. And we want to encourage you to get those questions and get those comments into our mailbag at bleacherblums.com because even though we may not get to your question today or the following podcast, be sure to, to know that Tuttle is flagging these and in the in the off season when the World Series is over and we need some content we're going to go back and try and answer some of those questions. So stay with us, stay subscribed, Rate Review, and for right now, I'm going to throw it over to David Tuttle and we're going to get right into that mailbag.
1: Yeah, so all those folks that mailed in about the Yankees and the pitch tipping and all that stuff, we'll get to that eventually, but we've moved beyond the Yankees for the for the for the time being. So if you're If you're fretting that we didn't get to your question, we got quite a few of those. So this is not so much a question. This is hilarious. This is a guy that we do see on Twitter occasionally, Murphy J, Murphy Jr. He says, so not a question, but more of a boot, what not to buy. So the Roper is a good starting point from 50 years of a Texan boot experience, but don't buy the following. Alligator boots and some crocodile boots are very hard on your feet. It took me several years to break some hornback alligators and finally threw them away. Best hide he says is the full quill ostrich or shark. So you didn't know there was hippopotamus, but there is full quill ostrich and shark. Um, he suggests a specific place in Austin called Heritage Boots. It sounds like you've already found your boot supplier at Tejas Boots, but uh, and he has bought Market Best Luces boots. Lucchesi. Um Lucasi, how about that? See, I didn't even screw it up. I should have proofread. <laughs> Lucasi boots. So he says those are the best ever. So. Um, oh, he's saying Lucchese boots were the best, and he found this Heritage boots in uh, Austin that he likes better. So, anyway, Murphy Jr. just chiming in on the boot com- uh, the boot comp commentary, and I thought it was appropriate since you had just brought that up. Uh, the next question, Jacob G. Hey, guys, first I just want to say I love the podcast. Y'all are doing an amazing job. We think so too. Thank you. Uh, my question is, do you think Granky <laughs> Do you think Granke would feel more comfortable being interviewed on your podcast? I would actually really like to understand more about him. Now that's a tough question because you and I have talked a little bit off air and we have a little history there. but uh, I don't know if Zach would do our podcast.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. and it you know it, maybe it would be a little more comfortable situation, maybe sitting across from a ball player. I don't know if if his issues with the media are because they are the media. I don't know if it's because they're not players or if it's a little more of a It's not a stricter environment, but it's a little more of a professional environment where you're answering some of these questions in the press conferences. So, you know, the camera's on, you know, the spotlight's on you. And I think that's where he kind of has the issue. And it's interesting to me, you know, I don't know the full history to the extent that maybe other people do. I know that he had the social anxiety, um, maybe a little bit of a depression mixed in there. But I also know that baseball is the one place where he can seek refuge And that's why he plays. He's on the field. Obviously, he's created a very good living. But I really feel that, you know, at the center of the diamond, with the attention on him, oddly enough, is where he's most comfortable. But again, you know, I feel like people who maybe have this issue or that I've been around that have had this issue, focusing on one thing really kind of takes their mind off the anxiety or the issue that's actually at hand. So I give Granke a lot of credit for finding a way to adjust and compete in that environment where the the spotlight is so heavy. But here in the playoffs, obviously, things uh, get get a little more attention. I'd be willing to ask Zach about it to see if he would be on the podcast because I've had reasonable conversations with him. It was kind of funny just to give you an instance about the interaction between Zach Granke and myself when we have traded for him and he was in Kansas City. I happened to be in the uh, dugout when he came out of the clubhouse. I said, hey, Zach, you know, Jeff Blum, good to see. You. And you could kind of see his head tilt a little bit like, oh, I've heard that name. And, uh, you know, explained to him who I was, that I played against him a, uh, quite a bit. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, you have a tough time with the changeup. And I said, that, that's me. That's Jeff Blum. <laughs> and I and I re- had a conversation talking about scouting reports and and fun stuff like that. So he he is a little interactive. And a little bit fun, and just to give you an idea about how he feels about his changeup, because I wanted to know more about the changeup, because he throws it almost as hard as his fastball. But he basically told me that he is holding it in that circle change grip and turning it over, really turning the wrist to the inside so that ball comes out the outside of the hand and creates that tailing down and away effect and down and into right-handed hitters. So he says he purposely tries to throw that as hard as he can. Because he feels he has better command of it, and he cre- and he feels it creates a little bit more deception off the fastball. But a good question. I wonder if Zach would be a little more comfortable right here in the office at Jeff Blum Studios to have a little bit of a conversation and get maybe his message out there. I think that's a great idea.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Granke, uh is an interesting guy, and I think maybe the podcast environment would be a way for him to uh, maybe articulate some of the things that make him different and unique. But I also think what makes him uh, a great pitcher. Is the fact that that's what he does. And you were saying that, you know, he's kind of single minded and he's got purpose and he goes out onto the mound. I mean, maybe being interviewed and being part of the team and part of the locker room and being on a podcast is not his strength. So I think ultimately it probably boils down to the fact that he is a really good pitcher. He knows how to handle himself on the mound and being a part of, uh, being a part of, I don't know. Being a part of the podcast environment or the media or being a, a publicist for the game is just not his strength and it may not be something he's interested in.
0: I agree. There's only one way to find out, just get in front of him and see what he says. Yeah, that's a
1: true statement. True statement there never was. Um let's see. And I think we are one more question, but this is uh this is going to lead into blum and blummer. So this is from Dan S. He's made the podcast before. Love your podcast. It's the only pod- podcast I listen to, uh, the only Astros podcast I listen to. My question is, what is y'all's reaction to the SI article regarding the postgame celebration and Astros executives? Thank you for the Bleacher Blum podcast, and we will let you get to that in Blum and Blummer. And so at this time, I just want to give a quick shout out to Crush City Tees. You guys know what they're all about at BleacherBlums.com. You can pick up your Bleacher Blums t-shirts, your GFC t-shirts, your I'm Tingly t-shirts. Those are all made by Crush City Tees, T-E-E-S, T-E-E-S.com, right there in H-Town. So uh, get on BleacherBlums.com and you can order a t-shirt. You'll be supporting Crush City Tees.
0: That's good stuff, and the T-shirts have been going well. We appreciate everybody who is involved and is representing the Bleacher Blums, and that's right. It has an S on the end of it because we are including everybody in these bleachers, and it is a tough time right now to be an Astro fan. The Astros are down 2 to nothing in the World Series as far as the four games uh, out of seven go. They got blasted for 17 runs over the last two games. Their offense has looked anemic. Their studs have been attacked and they have been hit on. And now it's just a matter of, well, will the Astros be able to make that adjustment and be able to move on and continue to play great baseball? Because we stated it before, we'll state it again. They are the best team in baseball, the Houston Astros. They have 107 wins in the regular season. But getting into the postseason, I mean, getting into the playoffs has been an issue. We talked about how in the American League Championship Series, the Astros hit 179, which is the second lowest batting average for any team moving on to the World Series. And now they're here in the World Series. And some of the numbers are creating a stark contrast between what the Nationals are doing and what the Astros are doing. And we're always trying to quantify clutch we're always trying to quantify and understand what the astros are doing as far as strike zone command so a couple of numbers i'm going to throw at you right now should be rather interesting as far as the astros and run production the RISP number is hitting with runners in scoring position the astros have had 39 plate appearances with runners on the nationals have had 37 so pretty similar in those numbers they are doing both doing a good job of getting runners on base but the Astros are three for 17. Their batting average is 176. They're on base percentage 224 and 294 uh, slugging percentage. In those times, they've had seven strikeouts and only three RBIs. That is terrible. And that explains why they're not scoring enough runs to compensate for what the pitchers are giving up. On the other hand, the Nationals talked about their 37 plate appearances. They are hitting 314. They are slugging 457. They have 12, 12 RBI in that time. And I miss I misspoke. It, the Astros have five RBIs and 10 strikeouts in that time. But the Nationals have 12 RBIs. And that's where that clutch stack kind of jumps out for me is what uh what they're doing with runners on. God damn it. i I've, I've completely boxed those numbers. So we'll go ahead and leave that in. I'm going to edit this out a little bit, but uh, just to be clear, 39 plate appearances with runners on for the Houston Astros. They are hitting two twenty-two with five RBIs. The Nationals have had runners on base 37 times that are hitting three fourteen. Now, if you calculate when they get to second or third base, that is the RISP number hitting with runners in scoring position. The Astros are three for 17 with seven strikeouts and only three RBIs, and that's a one seventy-six batting average. On the other hand, the Nationals, seven for 21. And for those of you at home who are very good at math, you know that's a 333 batting average, but 10 RBIs. So that's seven more RBIs just with runners in scoring position. And if you take it even further and, and uh, really grind down on the numbers, how about in being incredibly clutch with two outs? The RISP number with two outs, the Astros are two for 11, which is 182. It's actually better than they do with runners in scoring position. But the Nationals are hitting 417, 5 for 12. So the pitchers have been unable to get that third out and get out of these innings. And those two-out RBIs, you know as well as I do, Tuttle, those are absolute backbreakers for a team when you get those two-out RBIs. Not just for the
1: team, they're for the pitcher. You work so hard to get to this spot. And I felt like in game one, that's where they got Scherzer. He, he battled back. He punched out two guys. He's got guys in scoring position. And then Guriel hit the ball off the wall. And, you know, you just felt like there's, you know, they let the air out of the balloon there. The Nationals were going to go away quietly, and they haven't, obviously. Um, I think two two points. One is the risk, risk number that you pointed out, runners in scoring position or hitting with runners in scoring position. You brought that up before the World Series on Monday or Tuesday, whenever we last talked, as your clutch number. That's some something that you you put a lot of stock in. And now, as we see two games into the World Series, it's shown up and, and it's, you know, it's it's the meat of what we're talking about. The guys that hit well with runners in scoring position are the teams that hit well with runners in scoring position, as well as the teams that hit well with runners in scoring position and two outs are the, are the teams that win. And like you said, when we play 162 games, a lot of this stuff kind of evens out. But in a short series, and certainly in these two games, the Nationals have had the upper hand by doing that. Now, there's, you know, probably a lot of, positivity in the fact that they don't normally hit like that. And then there's some ability, but as we know, there's also some momentum, momentum working against them. So it'll, it'll be an interesting, uh, as all of this is, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. But I think you've kind of certainly uh, established your key to the series. And I think that so far that's playing out and the Astros need to hit better overall, but they certainly need to hit better with runners in scoring position.
0: Yeah, you know, it's that old theory. If you're not going to get a lot of hits, get them at the right time or, you know, make them them count the most. And the way you make them count the most is getting those hits with runners in scoring position. And, you know, the actual risk number itself, I think, across Major League Baseball and watching a lot of these games has changed a little bit because I think the mentality has changed. And we've had Jeff Bagwell in the booth talking about this as far as how do you hit with runners in scoring position? How do you become one of those guys that drives in a lot of runs? And you hear the term give up yourself or give up your at bat, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's just a shift in idea. And the idea this day and age in modern day hitting is to create the uppercut, lift, separate, elevate to celebrate, call it whatever you want, but it's really trying to swing as hard as you possibly can to try and hit the home run. And that's where the two two out, two strike approach has kind of gone by the wayside. And I think that's where it's become a little bit of a lost art. But guys who go out and get a lot of RBIs and drive in a lot of runs, Alex Bregman, most notably, and Yuli Gurriel has been a very good example for me, is you start to shift your focus from to pull, to elevate to the pull side. If I have a runner on second base and Jeff Bagwell, a big time Hall of Fame RBI guy, said that he would go from lift to the pull side to go back up the middle because the pitcher knows he's in a tough spot. He knows if he gives up a base hit that RBI is going to be given up. So he's going to focus a little bit more. He might pitch you a little bit differently and give you not give you something you can drive. So why not use what that pitcher is giving you and look up the middle into the bigger portion of the ballpark. Or if the shift is on, look to the big portion of the ballpark kind of move your eyes to that opposite field and say, okay, that is an open area And that's what I'm going to try and attack and hopefully you get a pitch to be able to do that with but I really feel that it is staying in the big part of the ballpark and not focusing on the pull elevated side, where I've seen a lot of guys with two outs two strikes runners in scoring position, really open up and take some monster hacks and maybe missed an opportunity. And I don't know if you see the same thing from the pitching angle, uh, Tuttle.
1: You know, I I do. And it's weird because the folks that you talk about, like uh, the Bregmans of the world and Brantley, of course, Brantley seems to have a two-strike approach from pitch one. He stays pretty spread out, gets his foot up and down, and then just tries to drive the ball the other way. Um, Bregman, you can see more of a, you know, home run hitter or yank guy early in the count. But the best hitters, and and maybe it's that the situation gets a little too big for them, but the best hitters seem to me to still have the same approach. Now it used to be get them on, get them over, get them in. We know that that's gone by the wayside, but I do see Gurriel trying to go the other way. I certainly see Brantley trying to do it. Soto's swing has been analyzed immensely, but he kind of spreads out from the get-go. Maybe he tries to yank here or there, but he, you know, he's got a really wide kind of stance. His hands are quiet and he seems to be from pitch one, trying to use the whole part of the ballpark. And as you know, um, good hitters that do that, they'll pull the off-speed stuff, but they'll still take the hard stuff the other way, and they're hitting more balls hard on a more consistent basis. I, I got the the pre- privilege or the honor, I don't know if that's right, to face Pudge Rodriguez in winter ball in Puerto Rico, and the first thing I noticed when I came in to face him was he, it it looked to me, now I didn't know this, I didn't have a scouting part, he was trying to hit everything hard to right center field, and... If you threw a middle away, he was going to smoke that ball to right center. So you were trying to, I was trying to find a way to sink it in. And Altuve has a little bit of the same approach. When you're trying to go hard in on that guy, if they know their zone really well, well, guess what? They lay off that stuff. They don't let it ride in on them. So your best hope is for them to either not recognize a pitch or to keep them off balance with uh speed, like an off speed pitch or, you know, or a changeup, because they are, keeping their hands back, they're nice and quiet, and they're really trying to drive the ball the other way. I, I haven't seen what you've seen to that same extent. I think there's a little luck involved um, in terms of bad luck. but uh, and, and I think, like you said, the situation can get too big for some guys, and maybe they're trying to do too much. Right, instead of slowing it down and taking their same approach, they might be trying to do too
0: much. Yeah, and that's understandable in this, uh, you know, these condensed series where so much is on the line. You do have a tendency to try and do too much. Number one, because you understand the, the amount of pressure in the situation, but you also want to be the hero. It's only human nature to go up there in certain situations and say, "I want to be the guy that drives in the runs and really turns this thing around." And I really think that Tuttle has brought up a great point in the sense of bad luck because there was an article in ESPN that kind of. Pointed to that fact, it was amazing to read some of the numbers because you do feel that the Astros have been shifted on quite a bit. And you also do feel that the Astros actually have taken some pretty good swings because we've seen line drives at, at players in the infield and to the outfield. And just to bring up a little bit about Yankee Stadium and how, man, that stadium is so small. You know, the outfielders are playing 15 feet behind uh, the infielders. So a lot of those line drives that you think are going to find a gap or be over the head and in front of the outfielder are caught in Yankee Stadium, but it's changed a little bit in uh, you know w- w- in the World Series. And the Astros, you know, on Wednesday, we'll just take one game, and you guys know that I love following BaseballSavant.com uh, during the game, but they do a good job of recording the expected batting average, and the way they do that is exit velocities, launch angles. They take a lot of the analytics – and put an algorithm, and it punches out, you know, the amount of times a player gets a hit with those certain velocities and launch angles, and the Astros' expected batting average on Wednesday, believe it or not, game two was 360. That's a pretty damn good batting average, and that means guys are getting on base, and potentially some of those being hits in runners in scoring position type situations. So the expected, this isn't the actual batting average. The expected batting average was 360, and the Astros, in reality, during that game, went nine for 37, which is a 243 batting average. Is that not insane? So now we go to the other side. The expected batting average for the Washington Nationals, 225 in game two. Guess what they did? They went out and went 14 for 40 for a 350 batting average. So that gives you an idea of good luck, bad luck. And it's kind of interesting that those numbers are bearing out. And that's why the Astros are not scoring runs. It's pretty incredible stuff. And I think it speaks to what you were just talking about, Tuttle, how it has been bad luck for the Astros pitching, good luck for the the Nationals hitting, but bad luck for the Astros hitting. But I wonder how much of that is, you know, these guys giving up themselves, going the other way, like we talk about. Or is it just bad luck on good pitches?
1: Yeah, I, that's a great question. I will say this: I know this uh, this podcast tends to get a little pro Astro, but I will I, w- I will like to give some credit to the Nationals too. And I think that's the that's the kind of the the gambling part of it that we always talk about. Like, what do the odds say? And remember, this year Verlander lost once with the the greatest odds of against the Orioles, or Garrett Cole lost once with the greatest odds of winning ever in a baseball game. And uh, I, I just think. The players play the game on the field. And we talked about this a, a few podcasts ago, and certainly last podcast, that the Nationals are a really hot team right now. They have Scherzer and Strasburg, which are two of the best pitchers on the planet, just like uh, Cole and Verlander. And those games, probably in their mind, are 50-50. It's really about getting to the bullpen, which they did early um, in game one. And that game became very competitive towards the end. Obviously, there was some speculation about running out balls and doing this. And I think Springer thought he tied the game. but. But here's the deal. That was a close game. Um, That game could have gone either way. Same with the next game. We said that was going to be a tie game. It was 2-2 to going into the seventh and then 3-2. to And that game could have stayed close. So we end up having a lot of prognostication, a lot of after-the-fact type stuff. But I think if the Astros win tonight, um, the conversation will just shift back to, you know, kind of this is going to be a six or seven game World Series. And how do the Astros find a way to win it? But uh, I would not bet against the Nationals momentum, especially after beating both Cole and Verlander at home. I think uh, a lot of folks outside of the Astros community would say that that's a team of destiny. So I don't want to overlook the Nationals. There's definitely good luck and bad luck involved in baseball, and we can talk about that in the offseason, right? What does uh, Bull Durham say? One little duck fart, one little Texas leaguer, one little <laughs> gr- ground ball with eyes, he says, right? Like that makes, the, that makes your year as a hitter you know two of two of those during the year that makes that makes your whole year. I think we can say that about the Astros and the Nationals at least thus far through two games. You know, they've had the momentum in their favor, they've had some balls bounce their way, but I guarantee in that clubhouse they believe that they can beat the Astros. And uh, and so far they're they're proving it.
0: Yeah, I would imagine the belief is pretty high. And you know this is different than two thousand seventeen for the Astros in the sense that they are the hunted, they are the best team, and they have the target on their back. And I wonder if that mentality has kind of put them in a little bit of a panic too, you know, as opposed to two thousand seventeen when they were the hunters. But I wonder if that has shifted a little bit and maybe put them in a position where they're like, well, the Nationals have everything to lose now. We're the underdog after two games, so let's go out there and play the best baseball we can. But at the same time, I don't think the Astros can go out there and say, oh, we got nothing to lose now. We're already down 2-0. I think that could be, couldn't be further from the truth because I think, and you know, there's a little bit of fan in me, and obviously I'm with the Astros, but I think it would be a disappointing series if the Astros weren't able to make a series out of this. And I had a friend talk to me the other day and you'll remember this being a Bay Area guy, how about 1990 when the Cincinnati Reds rolled into Oakland and just absolutely put a whooping on them? And we don't even talk about the Oakland A's of that uh, 1990 season. They were the best team in baseball. They had the pitching, they had the Bash brothers, and here came Eric Davis and the Cincinnati Reds and just blew their doors off in four games, and they were the World Series champions. So I hope it doesn't turn into a situation like that, but as, much, as, confidence, as confident as the Astros can be, I think there's a little bit of worry in there and they understand the momentum. They need to find a way to take that crowd out early in DC because they are going to be rabid. They're going to be loud. And like you said, when they, when the nationals take the field, because they've earned this right to your point, Tuttle, they have pitched well, Davey Davey Martinez has done a good job in bringing in the right guys out of the bullpen and they've gotten the timely hits They deserve to be in the driver's seat. They deserve to reap all the benefits and understand that they are the team to beat right now. But the Astros need to score early and often to shut down that crowd because it's going to be raucous and rightfully so.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. And I I actually had this conversation uh, after our podcast. No, before our podcast. No, no, it was after our last podcast because we hadn't seen any games in the World Series. I had this conversation with a friend of mine about... um, uh, about what Davey Martinez was going to do had he not had it not worked out in game one. I mean, he was, he was already at his wits end by, you know, bringing in Doolittle in the eighth inning. If Springer's ball did get out of the yard, he had nobody else to bring in. I mean, he would have to go to Rainey, and he would have gone, but I think he didn't have a backup plan. And we've talked about that on this podcast. Sometimes not having a backup plan is a good thing for the team with nothing to lose. And I think we talked earlier in this podcast about momentum and you know, jinxes are for the week. What do they do to change up their luck? I agree with you. I don't think they can just throw their hands up and say, all right, well, now we're the underdog, but I do believe that they're going to just change kind of their approach or change their mentality, change something up today and yesterday uh, or yesterday and today to just kind of be a little more relaxed and find a way to just win one game. And, And they always say that, right? The the, the top of the mountain, you got to get there one step at a time. I mean, they can't win four games. They have to win one game, and I'm sure that's where their mindset is right now.
0: Yeah, and game three should be an interesting one for the Astros because if they stay in the same rotation using that game four as a bullpen day, game three could be very interesting. They need Zach Greinke to go at least five, six innings to push that bullpen back because – if game three turns into a pseudo-type bullpen day and they have to use guys and then back it up and have a bullpen day on game four, might put a little, little extra stress on a guy like Jose Urquiti, where they'd have to get some more innings out of him. And who knows what that's going to do because Urquidy looked great. Is he going to look great again? We have no idea. That's why you go out there and play. Uh, so game four is set to be a bullpen day. And then you've got decisions to make on bringing back Cole Verlander, you know, what situation, what rotation do you put them in? But these next two they're, these next three games are must win games for the Astros, obviously, but they have to win two. They have to at least get back to two games before they uh, try and even think about deciding to bring this thing back to Houston to try and stretch it out to six or seven where they have to go in order to make it a winning world series for the Houston Astros. They are definitely behind the eight ball. They're in a tough spot. I don't. I wish I could say right now or prognosticate or anticipate, but as good as the Nationals have been playing, I am concerned, and I know a lot of fans don't want to hear that from me because throughout the course of the season I try and be as positive as possible. But the reality of it is, the Nationals are playing well. Their rotation sets up nicely. Anibal Sanchez, who's going to take the ball uh, uh, tomorrow, not tonight. I think tonight. Okay, so Anibal Sanchez tonight, Patrick Corbin tomorrow. Sanchez has a ton of confidence going into this thing. He went seven and two thirds, no hit baseball the last time he was out there. And Granke, to be honest, you don't know what you're going to get from him. He could be lights out or he could give up four or five. But I think if the Astros can get six quality innings, give up three earned runs and have the offense show up, it would be a big deal, but I'm not going to sit here and go, man, uh, the Astros are going to take the next three, no problem. To be honest, Tuttle, I hope that we are talking about the World Series w- when it comes Monday after we take the weekend off.
1: Yeah, I, I would uh, completely agree with you. And, and let's go back to my my. Uh, I hate to keep bringing up my betting style since I don't have a lot of statistics to back it up. But you have a 107 win team in the Astros. The Dodgers were a 106 win team. Uh, the Yankees were a 100 win team. Those three teams, you know, obviously the Astros are still in it. The Nationals have no fear. They're a 93-win team, and as I pointed out last podcast, they went you know 74 and 38 to finish out the year, which is pretty good numbers. The bottom line is they don't fear anybody, and to your point, I, they should be nervous. I mean, I, I don't mean taking the field nervously, but the momentum has certainly shifted. I think prior to the series, even though the, the Nationals, as we pointed out, had some momentum because their pitching was so solid, they were using a short staff, you know, five, six, seven guys to get all the outs. And, and you know, and you didn't know what their offense was going to bring, whereas the Astros have a deep lineup and, and the two big guys at the top of their rotation. And honestly, right now, I feel like the Astros need to play a little bit more like the Nationals have been playing in the sense that A.J. probably has to manage a little differently, meaning if Granke's struggling in the third inning, bring in whomever. If he's got Cole on his side day for two innings, bring in Garrett Cole for two innings. And then bring in Osuna in the seventh inning. I mean they should play with a little more desperation and get the best players on the field during the best time. And to your point, I, I don't think that's a panic button. I just think that's what the other teams do. The Dodgers tried to do it. Um, they skipped Jansen, obviously, at the end, and that was tough. But they try and get their best guys in the game, whether it be too early or not. The Nationals, of course, are doing that. The Yankees certainly do that, bringing in Chapman in the seventh inning or the eighth inning. I mean, this is the time of year when everything counts. And I believe that uh, they probably, without acting desperate or being overly uh, cautious or nervous, they need to start, you know, they need to start getting every each and every out and treating it like it's precious.
0: Yeah, we are at the win at all cost point right now to Tuttle's point. And I agree, you can't start manipulating things. You've got to go out there and manipulate wins. That's what it ultimately comes down to. That's gonna do it for the Astro Talk. Tuttle, what have you got for me today? Because going into the weekend, we need some what'll, tuttle, say.
1: All right. We do have what'll, tuttle, say. Uh, I guess I was going to go to the don't bet on it here, but we got some time. So let's go to, you know, this is a simple one. This is really easy. Uh you know what should i keep it baseball related let's see yeah we'll go we'll go baseball related so i wrote down a note during the first part of the world series here that says Robles is super shaky in center field and he may cost them some runs in the series i'm gonna just put that out there i wrote it down it was an instinct of mine i don't know he dove for that ball that hit him in the butt (laughs) i mean i guess he got the back of his leather on it and then he ran over to the gap and he looked like he couldn't see the ball i i I feel like that guy's going to cost the uh, Astros some runs. So that's a statement, obviously. The other thing I had was quality control coach. I heard that a few times this week. Uh, Some guys up for manager. I think the Padres just hired a guy that was a minor league ops guy, but he was a quality control coach. They're interviewing some other guys. Can you tell me, Blummer? I mean, I've been out of baseball for about 15, 20 years what the hell is a quality control coach and how do how do they relate to the field and are these baseball guys are these analytic guys are they baseball guys that they want to keep in the dugout so they gave them a title and and then they just stuck them in there i have no idea what a quality control coach is and do the astros actually have one does every team have one
0: Um, i don't think the astros actually have one in their dugout because i think they've got a guy named aj hinch who does a very good job of managing and you know delineating what information is in there now this day and age when you do hear the term quality control coach and i'll try and do some investigating on this and ask some questions to try and figure this one out because i don't know to a like to a t what that exactly that means but my guess considering everything that is going on this day and age with the analytics and trying to create the bridge between front office and field i think the quality control guy if i had to guess which I am because I have my podcast, <laughs> is, is a guy who can take the analytics, crunch the numbers, and figure out how to get them into the clubhouse and be most effective with them without totally inundating and confusing the, the everyday player. That's my idea of the quality control guy.
1: All right. So uh, you haven't seen them or met them, or you're just not, oh, okay, well, there you go. I mean, that, that means a lot to me because
0: I, I hadn't heard of that position at all. No. Well, I'm like you, the only, I've only heard of it and I've seen it on other teams, but I've never spoken to it during a broadcast. Never needed the, I, I, if, you know, I, there's probably on my, I'm bad on my part because I didn't investigate it or it could also be the old school ball player. I mean, it's like, who the hell needs a quality control guy? You know, it's like the sideline guy in football pushing everybody back and make sure you don't get a sideline infraction. I don't know. That's what I initially thought it was. But I think the more I think about it, I think it's the guy who can break down the numbers and make them fit into the today's game. Yeah,
1: I think that's probably right. I I, I guess I could probably Google it as well. But I just heard a guy, a couple of guys that were up for manager managerial spots. As we know, it sounds like Joe Girardi's going to get the Phillies and Madden got the Angels and. But I just kept hearing these guys saying, "Oh yeah, he's within their organization. He's the quality control coach." And I just thought, "Whoa, I guess if I became a quality control coach, I would know what that is." But I, I'm always wondering if it's a if it's a baseball guy or an analytics guy, or as you said, a guy that can translate uh, what they're sending down from the front office onto the field. Which actually, probably this same age would be a relevant position. It's just something I hadn't heard of uh, until they, they started interviewing for these managerial openings. So I appreciate you sharing that. I threw that at you without any sort of, uh, tea. So that's you, that, that should be it for what'll Tuttle say. I got some stuff for don't bet on it. You want me to jump into that? Yeah. Bring it, man. It's about that time. Cause we're heading into the weekend. We need these numbers. Bring it,
0: Tuttle. Don't yeah. bet on it.
1: Yeah. What'll Tuttle say? What'll Tuttle say is, you know, very similar to don't bet on. It's just listening to my voice talk about a different subject. So, uh, as we know, I'm a 66% or 66.7% gambler. I'm going to try and get all three. One of these weeks, I'm going to give you one college game, two pro games. That seems to have been working for me. Uh, I do live here in Southern California, but my wife happens to be a Bruin alum. So I'm going to take Colorado plus plus thirteen and a half against USC. USC won on the road big last week at Arizona. Colorado's look terrible. So, you know, that's always my formula for USC won big on the road. They have to go up to Colorado. So, I'm sure there's some elevation there. And then USC has to win by two touchdowns. I'm saying Colorado keeps that game close. And we'll take Colorado plus 13 and a half. My other games are the New York Giants plus eight. I don't even remember who the New York Giants are playing. So, um, but we're going to take them plus eight. I think they're at home, and then the Miami Dolphins, who won me some money last week when I was in Vegas against the uh, Buffalo Bills, we're going to take the Dolphins two weeks in a row plus 17 points. So Miami plus 17. They're playing Pittsburgh without Ben Roethlisberger, mm. so I figure Miami can Miami can keep it closer than 17. So those are my three picks: Colorado plus 13 and a half, your New York Football Giants plus eight, and the Miami Dolphins plus 17. Folks, don't bet on it
0: beautifully done Tuttle. Uh, i like it i hope you continue to play at that 67 percentile because that is incredible but uh, we're going to move on to blum and blummer i expected the rocky mountains to be a little rockier than this i was thinking the same thing jeff blum's full of shit man And in Blum & Blummer, it's going to be a little bit of that controversial topic, and I'm not going to get too in-depth on it. because Number one, because I I don't know enough about the situation, and number two, I hope it goes away. It it was an ugly scene, apparently, after the celebration of the American League Championship Series for the Houston Astros. There's plenty of coverage on it on Twitter and through Sports Illustrated with one of the reporters maybe being – not maybe she was she was victimized by a quote by Brandon Tobman who is the assistant general manager for the Houston Astros and for obvious reasons you know I'm an Astro employee but I also was not in the vicinity of of what was going on so please bear with me uh in trying to explain the situation but after the celebration there was a derogatory comment to the reporter regarding uh, Roberto Osuna who You know the speculation about the domestic violence issue caused a lot of controversy when he came over, and it was mishandled by the Astros. They apologized for that. Uh, Brandon Taubman has since been fired, and Jeff Luno's had to make some comments. So it's been kind of it. It hasn't been handled perfectly, but I don't know how you handle this situation perfectly because there is so many so many uh, you know people involved and statements made. But I think the Astros, you know, unfortunately. Unfortunately, did the right thing in firing Brandon Taubman and just trying to, you know, just extinguish the situation. But uh, there's a lot of questions around the culture. Having been inside this organization for as long as I have, I don't, there's no chance that th- this is a culture issue for them. This is not something that they encourage, it's not something they tolerate. I also believe that the Astros are going to do the right thing to correct this and make it better moving forward. It's unfortunate, it's awful, it shouldn't have been said. And that's all I'm going to comment on it. I think it's a tough spot for everybody to be in, but I am just going to completely avoid it. And hopefully it has gone away and it's out of mind because the Astros need to focus on baseball. And I said it on a couple of radio interviews. I think the hardest part has got to be for the players knowing that they won an American league championship uh, series and an opportunity to go to the world series and they wake up the next day and they've got to answer questions about this. So hopefully it's over with. Hopefully we can focus on baseball and hopefully the Astros can turn this series around and give us some positivity and something to look forward to moving forward. But yes, this was a real stain on the Houston Astros and hopefully they can uh, absolve themselves and move on from this situation and learn from it.
1: I appreciate you saying that Blum. I, I think it's interesting because I've been, we've all been involved in situations where the one bad apple spoils the bunch. And I think to to kind of paint it with a broad brush and say that it might be a cultural thing doesn't really seem fair. Um, I just I, I, I heard this the other day and uh, and I think it's true. We talk about having uh, freedom of speech in uh, in the United States of America. And we love free speech. And that's that's what democracy is founded on. But it really only applies to governmental issues and your freedoms as a citizen. It does not apply to you when you work for a company or a corporation or an organization. And that's where I think a lot of people, even athletes get that mistake. In a lot of times like, Hey, I can say whatever I want. Um, I think the, the person that brought this up was applying a little bit of it to Baker Mayfield, who was criticizing the refs saying, look, I'm, you know, I've got to hold them accountable, just like I hold myself accountable and it's a free country and I can say whatever I want. And then he got a letter in the mail, finding him a certain amount of money because you cannot say what you want when you work for an organization. And, and rightfully so I think, uh, the whole situation. Probably, and I don't mean this for the the women and the actual situation, the discrimination, but got a little bit overblown. It was one idiot saying some things that he shouldn't say, and you know, the situation got resolved the way it should, which is he got let go and and I think uh, I'm not an employee of the Astros, so I appreciate you saying what you did and having the freedom to say what you did um in in terms of within the outline of uh, of where you're employed, but the bottom line is this should not be a stain on the entire uh, organization. And unfortunately that it came up when it did uh, because of, of, um, of the world series and all the other stuff. But the bottom line is it sounds like a guy like this would be exposed regardless, meaning he obviously had some thoughts and some deep seated things that he felt like he needed to get off his chest. And, so uh the one bad apple spoils uh spoils a little event and a little party and now it's time to move on from that so i appreciate you addressing it we got some mailbag questions on it and uh like you said, it's time to move on. It's time to play some baseball and win some games.
0: It is. And that's going to finish it up for Bleacher Blums. We are going to tell you that we are cheering for the Astros. At least I am. I know Tuttle is too. He's got family members doing the same. My family members are doing the same. We are just hoping for the best. And we hope that next time we get on with you, hopefully around Monday of Tuesday or Tuesday of next week, the Astros have extended this World Series into game six and seven and bring it back to Houston. Uh, And speaking of free speech, we can't have it without the military. So a lot of applause for the military out there. We appreciate all your hard work, dedication to continuing our freedom and giving us the pleasure of being able to speak our minds. Uh, First responders continue to do a great job. A lot of thoughts and prayers for everybody out there in California fighting those fires. But uh, everybody out there, be well and continue. uh, We continue to support you on Bleacher Blums. Tuttle, any final words?
1: No, I agree with you. We got to we got to support the Astros even if I'm not an Astros homer just to see a good good World Series. I mean, it keeps our discussion sharper. So, uh certainly I uh, would like to see a good World Series and uh, again, always the like you said the thoughts and prayers go out to the first responders especially here in California with the Santa Ana's and everything. We uh we do appreciate you and we do think about you.
0: Awesome stuff. That's going to do it for Bleacher Blums and for all of you Blums who are hanging out here in the bleachers with Tuttle and I. We want to tell you every single time to get after it but most of all believe it